Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ. Yes, yes, you can go beyond the FM dial and listen to us live and in the moment at RadioNorthland.org and tune in as well. And if you don't, it's just for whatever reason, you know, things happen, life happens, and you can, you're not able to catch us live and in the moment, you can check out the archives over seven and a half years worth of Wrestling Memories Then and Now uh, at uh, RadioNorthland.org. Oh, man, we got some good good stuff uh, uh, in the past, in the can, and we got some great stuff coming up. And that's, my name is Glenn Broggett. I'm flying solo this week. Yes, the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy, along with George Shire, they're both on assignment. I sent those guys out to uh, book us some great guests for upcoming editions of the program as we uh, keep rolling on here in the spring of 2019. And, you know, while those gentlemen are out there scouting and booking, you know, working hard for the cause, you know, I, I just didn't want to just have here me talking about stuff for an hour by myself. No, I did some booking myself, and I found myself, I, I booked a, a great guest. Uh, in fact, this man the, I'm about to introduce, this gentleman, is definitely a product of the, the classic territory days of professional wrestling in the 1970s and up to its uh, you know rise and fall in the 1980s through a McMahon expansion. He has, been, he has worked so many territories for so many well-known promoters. He has worked inter- Internationally, He has worked with some of the greats of pro wrestling, uh, as well as being a great himself. Popular, so popular. You mentioned him down in the southwest uh, part of Texas, man, of the state of Texas in general. If you're a wrestling fan, they'll remember this guy. Yes, we are so, I am pleased to, to welcome him. He's here today to talk about a book. Yes, he finally put his life story, his wrestling story, his life story in book form. And it is the one book you wrestling fans have to pick up and you want to hear some good stories. You want to hear about a, a wrestler who, who went the distance all through these years. We're going to welcome him. The book is called One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. Scott Casey, welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now, my man. It is so good to have you on the program to talk about uh, your book, your life in the ring, out of the ring. It's just great to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, Glenn. You're making my head swell talking like that. But anyway, I'll bring it back down. Uh, Yeah, it's been quite a while since I wrestled, but I enjoyed every minute of it. And, uh, you know, I told... Uh, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan when I was up there and I got my walking papers. I said, look, guys, you are the main event. You're making the big money. God bless you. I said, but remember this. When it's gone, when it's over with, it's over with. It's like a time, a window in time. You cannot walk. You can go through it, but you can't come back. You can try. And I saw a lot of old guys try to keep on keeping on in the business. And it, it was embarrassing and sad, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I almost went too long myself. I retired when I was, oh, God, 42, something like that. And I remember Dino Bravo calling me George Burns. <laughs> <laughs> he called me the George Burns because I was older than everybody. But <clears throat> I enjoyed every minute up there in New York, and so be it. You know, it's been amazing. Now you were, you know, Dino called you George Burns when you were 42 years old. I'm 42, going to be 43 here in a few days. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's crazy because you think about pro wrestling now and how many of the guys that are, have, have stuck around and how many of the guys that are still on a, a big stage doing it into their late 40s and into the 50s. I mean, it's not exactly for every guy who's worked in the ring to make it to that point. Uh, some people can do it and some people, you know, whether it's injuries or something else that distracts them or takes them away from it. Man, that, that that's quite a, quite a, a bit of longevity in and of itself yeah it is I, I it's just like i 
trained, honest to God, six days a week, an hour to two and a half, two hours tops, working out to stay in shape. And I did it for 20 years. You know, I mean, I don't care if I was hungover, mad at my wife, or whatever. I still went to the gym and did it because I loved it. It's like I told somebody one time, they, I said, you know, you ever have a job that you can't wait to get up the next day to do it again, and they pay you for it? That was the funny thing. I said, <laughs> I loved every minute of it. I loved All the injuries, all the crazy stuff that we did in and out of the ring, I loved it. It was, it was an en- enlightening way to make a living and it was really a lot of fun <clears throat> and you're and you have so generously uh shared so many great stories of your life in the ring the ups and the downs i mean you are definitely 100 percent straight up telling your story i mean uh, sometimes it can get warts and all but i i really that's what i appreciate i mean you share the highs and the lows and boy this book one last ride the tale of scott casey i want to talk about what made you decide that this was the time you know to, to put this book together to put your stories together what was it that got you kind of going and into the process of, of putting this book together uh you know your your stories of, of of the life in the ring i like a friend of mine lee dutcher down in st pete florida told me one time and i never forgot this he said scott time is a diminishing asset and i thought my old ass is getting too old and i better do it now before i can't remember everything and uh that's why i did it you know i figured you know i would tell people some stories and i like to tell my friends and I tell you, and I hope that we can be good friends, that it I did not throw anybody under the bus. There were many times that I could have said things about guys. Some of them were married, and I know I would have had a lot of irate wives at me on. But I didn't do it. You know, it's just mm-hmm. you know, why? I can tell I can make a story and and be very entertaining without having to do something like that. I know there's one thing in the book that I didn't, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Manny Fernandez said that he and I and somebody else walked in on Bob Sweet 10 taking money from people's pockets. I do not remember that. If we did, I, then I, I maybe my Alzheimer's is coming around or something, but I don't remember ever seeing Bob do that. I saw Bob do a lot of crazy things, but not that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the only thing that I can remember in that book that had me a little edgy about it, but it was already published, and they were spitting it out all over the country, and so be it. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, too, you have so many uh, just adventures, uh, in you know, of your life in pro wrestling where you don't need to throw anybody under the bus. And, I, I mean, you have so much more to cover. You have so much to cover in this book. I mean, and I know that you probably have a few extra stories. I mean, you, again, you don't oh. have to go that route, man, to, to uh, you know, you know, try to get a few extra listeners or get a few extra headlines, get a few extra copies sold, because I think the stories just, man, they're great. And like you said, I guess I'm thinking that you must have a few more in the canon that didn't make the final cut <laughs> yeah i do i do you know i it's uh i used to raise quarter horses down in san antonio after i i went down there and wahoo and tully and uh, uh, joe blanchard said we need to get you a gimmick 
And uh, Wahoo said, well, I'm an Indian. Why don't we make him a cowboy? Well, you know, I used to ride horses and stuff. And like anything else in my life, if I got into it, I threw myself completely into it. And that's what I did with that. But I had 60 acres inside the city limits of San Antonio that I used. I rented. I bought starting gates. And if I could find that uh, tape of what I'm about to tell you, it's the funniest thing. The starting gates, we were, we had a thoroughbred. And, I mean, he was just quicker than a hiccup. I mean, this horse just was unbelievable. We made a little money with him, too. But uh, he had this thing where he was kind of what, uh, what's his name? Jim Howard, who helped me there. And Jim was from Atoka, Oklahoma, full-blooded Cherokee. He said that uh, the horse was barn sour, which meant he never wanted to leave the barn. Well, we had the starting gates, and we're trying to get him ready to go to one of these uh, Bush League places to try to make some money. And I had a little Spanish guy named Pepe, and he was trying to ride it. Well, he couldn't control him. I said, give me that damn horse. I got up on him, and they opened the gates up. And if you've got a horse like that, you do what they call ponying, which means one guy's on one side of the horse, one's on the other, that way, he won't veer off towards the barn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this thoroughbred took just shot out of the cannon and went past the two quarter horses, made it a left turn, and I'm pulling back on the reins like crazy. And Jim goes, "Take a deep seat and a fur away look. It'll be over in a minute." I went, "Oh, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so. We hit the barn. Well, it was a barn that was built. It was, the place was a milk farm at one time, so there was concrete floors. We had aluminum horseshoes. I put them on the horse. We hit that that entrance and slid all the way to the back. Well, you know how some barns have uh, half doors, like a door on the bottom, one on the top. Mm-hmm. The top part was open. We hit that, and he stopped, and I went over the top of him. And in the back, I, I had all sorts of animals. I had a pig, and his name, I named him after Bob Sweetan. I called him Bob. And I, I hit that thing and went over the top of him, and boom, right there. And Jim comes in, and he goes, I told you, Scott. I mean, he, like a lot of cowboys, if he said ten words in a day, you were lucky. And when I heard him say, I told you, Scott, I couldn't believe it, but. It was fun. I mean, that that's just one of the few stories we had. I mean, it's there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned Wahoo McDaniel, and, and uh, of course, uh, Wahoo had a very, very important uh, place, a very important part in your story and creating uh, the Scott Casey name. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about. Um, you know the man. We'll talk a little bit about Wahoo here in a little in, in shortly. But there's another guy who you had write the foreword for your book, and this is a gentleman. I, I thankfully, you know, the internet has really opened up a lot of doors. But the YouTube through the years to be oh, able yeah. to watch some of the wrestling clips and stuff, and it's been just a wonderful tool. And I, I was able to watch a lot of some of the Southwest Championship stuff. And a guy who does your foreword, and and he is still in a uh, amazing shape these days, is uh, Luke Williams. Whether he was a sheep herder or a bushwhacker. Or a Kiwi sheep herder. I mean, him, Jonathan Boyd, and, you know, of course, Butch Miller. 
I mean, the sheep herders, when, when they ran in through the territories, I mean, it, it didn't matter if it was Watts or working for Blanchard. There was so, so many uh, great moments. And he had him, uh, he, or he was so kind to provide the foreword for the book. Talk about your connection with Luke and, and take us back to some of those days in San Antonio. Luke was the uh, second group of people that I met. I went to Australia prior, before that. I came back, you know, and so I learned all the bad words and everything like that. And I, 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 I'm, I'm working with, when I say working, wrestling with Luke in Copperas Cove, Texas, in the middle of the summer. And it is just blistering hot in this place. And it was one of these places that had the great big singing fans and stuff like that. Didn't help. Anyway, we're in the ring. I call a, uh, what they call a high spot, and I grabbed a sleeper hole on him. We went back into the ropes, and we're just, it looked like somebody threw water on us. We're so we're sweating so bad. We go through the ropes, and I, I think I said this in the book. We hit the floor, and my right collarbone popped out. Now, I turned my head to the right when I heard and felt this, and my chin touched my collarbone, if you can imagine that. And he looked at me, and he went, mate, mate, what happened? I said, Luke, get back in the ring. I'll stumble, fumble, and fall, and you cover me one, two, three. No, no, you're supposed to win. You're the champion. I said, I don't give a damn. I said, this is what you got to do because I'm hurt. So we did, and we finished the match. I went back to the dressing room, and there was a... Uh, EMT, I guess that's what they call them. The ambulance guys were there. And the guy said, well, he said, we'll tape your arm to your body. And I said, you'll, you know what, and fall in it. I said, this is what you're going to do. He said, but I, I said, it's my body. I want to do this. What I had him do is go under my armpit, mm-hmm. put gauze in there, and then tape, and went over the collarbone to bring it back down. You know, the collarbone is connected to the upper part of your arm, and mine had, had torn loose. You know, I said, I know what has to be done. And the only, you know, being a stupid jock like I was, I said, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to bench press 400 pounds again. And everybody's going, you're insane. I said, yeah, probably so. But anyway, and I got back where I could do it. But it was... Luke was uh, just a sweetheart of a guy. I mean, he, he said, I don't want to touch you. I said, fall on me. And he did and covered me one, two, three. But, uh, and, and we, I mentioned that to him, oh, probably four or five months ago. Uh, Hogan had a, a meet and greet thing where he was making a gazillion dollars doing this thing. And, uh, Luke was there because he had a, uh, health club, I think, there in Clearwater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about it. He said, "How's your shoulder?" And I, I said, "I took his hand, ran it across my shoulder, and you could feel the bone because it's not down into the groove where it's supposed to be. It, it sticks up above it." Mm-hmm. But like I said in the book, if you've read that part, I said you can find sympathy, and I won't say it on there. I'll just say shift and syphilis. You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, and. Uh, that's the way it was, you know. I mean, back then, you didn't have doctors running around with you or chiropractors or whatever like they do nowadays, you know. I think it's great the way that they're doing that. But that's, but Luke was just a, a sweetheart of a guy, and he still is, you know. And uh, 
I called him one time, and he was in New Zealand. And I said, well, get back over here. I want to harass you. And he started laughing, you know. But he was always nice to me. Mm-hmm. We're talking <laughs> with Scott Casey. He's the author of One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. Scott, I'm going to ask you a question uh, about uh, your upbringing, growing up in, in the great state of Texas. Can you tell us about those early days uh, in the Lone Star State? Yeah, well, I was born in Dallas and then uh, raised in Amarillo. And I met a lot of guys, you know, and a lot of great wrestlers. I mean, unbelievable wrestlers came out of Amarillo, I mean, from that territory, you know. You had the Funks. You had Dick Murdoch. You had Dusty Rhodes, you had Ted DiBiase, and the list just goes on and on and on. But uh, it's Amarillo, if you've never been there, it's unusual because you can stand out on the prairie and do a complete 360 turn and never see a tree, a bush, or nothing. It's kind of depressing, really, (laughs) but uh, that's just the way it was, you know, that's, uh, and uh, it, you know, somebody said one time, they said, oh, man, I wish it would quit rain. I said, just hold still for a few minutes and the weather will change. And sure enough, it does. You get blue northers, which are just colder than all get out. You get summertime that will just burn you to death. And you get wind. I, I was riding a, a horse up there one day, and the wind was blowing like crazy. And I looked at this fence post. Now, you know, fence posts usually have been there for a long time. This one had a piece of straw embedded in it. I said, it's time for me to go back to the barn. (laughs) I didn't want to get something stuck in me or the horse. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was fun up there. I had a lot of of fun with uh, my childhood friends and stuff like that. And I'll never forget when I was in uh, wrestling in Dallas one time, a a guy that I played football with, his name was Dave Schroeder, and he came down by the ringside, and I jumped outside and talked to him, hugging him. He said, man, if you'd have looked like that when we played ball, we'd have never lost a game. <laughs> but, well, yeah, I changed a lot. I mean, I gained like 40 or 50 pounds. and mm-hmm. It's one of those things where somebody said, Scott, you'll never be tall enough, you'll never be big enough, you'll never be whatever. And I thought to myself, don't tell me that because I'll prove you wrong. And when I walked through the curtains of Madison Square Garden the first time, I laughed to myself. I thought, "Mm mm-hmm, are you doubting Thomas? Here I am. You know, because I was like 5'10", 5'11". I lied and said I was six foot, but I was. I never made it there. But it was a lot of fun. And you know what I find just impressive, though, uh, too, I mean, is that you broke into the pro wrestling business at a time where it was such a very guarded community. And the tryouts, you hear such notorious tales from various territories, whether it would be uh, in the Carolinas or Florida, about guys that would get invited down to work in the ring with a couple of the guys and they would get stretched or they get run uh, until they couldn't run no more and they would get stretched and some would survive the cut while others would run back home, tail tucked between their legs. It's a testament to your own uh, stamina and uh, your own athleticism that you were able to get in and not only get in but you were able to train and excel yeah you know it's i i contribute a lot of that to uh moose murowski and bobby duncombe because they said you're going to go to florida we took we've already heard that i said yeah they said well we're going to train you to do something you may not be the best wrestler in the world right now but we're going to train you to do what they call jumping squats. Now, a jumping squat 
is if you're standing straight up and you jump out and drop your leg, your your thighs down horizontal with the ground, and and then come back up. You do up, down, up, down, and I got to where, honest to God, I could do 500 of them at a time. So when I went down to Florida, Hiro Matsuda was the trainer, part owner, or something like that, with uh, Eddie Graham, and I uh, he just was amazed that I could do that. Although he would still stretch my ass, and uh, it was <laughs> that was kind of torturous. But he had, he he really liked me and. When he died, I sent his wife a letter saying how much, how grateful I was for the training and the advice and things that he gave me, and she wrote me back and thanked me very much for that. But uh, he was a big asset to me. And what was that like working on, you know, your earliest territory, working for championship wrestling from Florida? Uh, what was the atmosphere like working for Eddie Graham? Uh, you, there's so, so many guys that you got a chance to work alongside with, uh, tagged up with, uh, wrestled against. Uh, what were some of your memories working, uh, you know, with uh, you know Eddie Graham, the boss, of course, but some of the guys that were uh, in that territory at the time, like your Tony Garrias, uh, your Norvell Austin, Sputnik Monroe. I mean, these are some big names, Bubba. Paul Jones, Bobby Shane, and uh, Corsica. Uh, of course, Joe Corsica Jean, that's what it is. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, championship wrestling from Florida in those early days yeah, cutting your I, teeth? What a way to cut your teeth, Jean man. You mentioned him. He was the very first match I had down there. And he was an old-timer at the time. And, you know, and the old-timers, you know, if you breathed too hard, you were stiff. And being young and all that, I would snatch him a couple of times. He said, take it easy, kid, you're too stiff. <laughs> you know, obviously he beat me, but, I mean, I... I <laughs> Speaking of winning and losing, I have a great story in there. I don't know whether I, I can. Yeah, I think I did. Uh, I wrestled somebody, I think Smasher Sloan or somebody like that, and he, we were in a ring. Normally a ring is like 20 by 20, and this was like 18 by 18. So you always had to watch what you were doing as far as bump taking. But he calls a bump a backdrop. And when he hit my shoulders, I raised up and went over the top of him. He came down, and his heels hit the uh, the rope and just jackknifed him on his head, knocked him out colder than a wedge. And Art Raschke, Baron Von Raschke's brother, I, I looked at him. He said, cover him. I said, oh, but uh, he said, cover him, damn it. So I did. I thought, I'm not supposed to do that. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> but... You live and learn. And that was my first win in Florida, simply because of his energy and exuberance in a small ring. So, Mm -hmm. anyway. And I I mentioned a few other guys, like, uh, I mean, before he passed away and it was an untimely, I mean, man, when he left, there were so many, uh, what ifs uh, was, was Bobby Shane. Uh, He, he he was kind of in the, was he around that territory when you were, you were, you were in there? Yeah. Bobby was there. And uh, great little heel. I mean, he wasn't the biggest in the world, but he had a lot of charisma, and he had it, whatever that is. But anyway, mm-hmm. like uh, Dusty Rhodes and guys like that. But I mean, he went as the king, and he was probably five foot nine, maybe five eight, and great guy. Had a beautiful wife, and the sad thing about that is. When he drowned in that airplane, when they were coming back 
it wasn't a week or two later that she committed suicide. And it was sad to say, but that's just the way it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, while, while you're in Florida, you kind of uh, started, you know, networking, and you're able to uh, to get yourself some international uh, time, uh, international work over in Australia with Jim Barnett. Uh, everybody has their stories about uh, Jim Barnett. Of course, the uh, everybody does the my boy. You know, there's always everybody, when he mentioned Jim Barnett to any wrestler, the my boy always seems to come out in the first or second <laughs> sentence. You know, it's just the way it is. But could you talk about the the you know getting hooked up with uh, Jim Barnett, the connection you made there, and going over to well, Australia, and what was that like? Jimsy, I was walking through the uh, dressing room, and I'm in the shower, and I'm a, I'm a pretty boy back then. <laughs> he goes, oh, my God, look at that. I mean, I'm sitting there buck-ass naked, and he said, that's worth $100, and flipped me a $100 bill. I thought, well, I could do a cartwheel for another, but I didn't say anything. Now, being from West Texas and young, I just did not know a lot about gay people. And I, and he was very blatant and open and didn't care who liked it or not because he was a very wealthy man, and he did his thing. But, I mean, you know, he never made any moves on me or anything like that. But that was so funny when I'm in the shower, you know, I, I'm all soaked up, man. He's looking at me going, oh, my God. It was funny. Okay, uh, you know, I, I, we're going to talk, we're going to get to Wahoo, but another guy, and we're going to kind of skip up a little bit just because of time constraints. I want to talk about uh, a guy who was recently uh, a focus on one of the episodes that was on Viceland about uh, the, the behind-the-scenes world of professional wrestling. I want The guy I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning is Bruiser Brody. Now, your connection with Brody goes back uh, to the days of pre-Brody Frank Goodish. Now, can you talk about Brody? Because he, he's just on my mind because I, I just recently rewatched the Vice uh, Viceland uh, TV uh, our documentary on him and I'm, I've always been fascinated with Brody ever since I was started watching wrestling as a kid but could you talk a little bit about Brody and even those Frank Goodish you know, pre-Brody days he was a bouncer at one of the nightclubs there and I would went in we got to be friends and uh, I mean humongous guy he was like 6'6 six, six, probably 32330 and as time went by he dropped down to around 300 or 290 just to move quicker but uh he we got to be good friends and uh a, fu- a true and funny story he was going to japan and i don't know they were paying him an exorbitant amount of money because he drew like crazy over there but uh they he was the what was it western states heavyweight champion and they wanted him to drop the belt either to the Funks or Ricky Romero or somebody like that. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, I don't know why he had a falling out with the Funks or what, but anyway, he he said, I'm dropping it to you. And he pointed at me, and I went, oh, good, great. What? And he said, yeah, I'm going to drop you the belt. So we wrestled in Corpus Christi. I'm in there, and we had a hellacious match. You know, blood's going everywhere. We're doing all that crazy stuff. And finally, he calls it, he said, sunset flip. Now, for you that don't know what that is, it's like taking a backdrop, but you're hooking your arms inside the waist and somersaulting over and catching the arms. And uh, I beat him, one, two, three. And I held on to the belt for quite a while. You know, it was... 
quite an honor up there to have that. But uh, he was just moody. I mean, even for a big guy, he kind of scared me sometimes. He'd get in one of these goofy moods. And uh, I'd say, you know, Frank, <laughs> you need to calm down. You're going to have a stroke. He said, stroke my ass. He said, I'm going to whip somebody. I went, I hope it's not me. Because you know, being that big, I knew I could outrun him, but not much. But, I mean, really nice guy. I mean, even though he had his mood swings sometimes, but he was still a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I miss him terribly. Oh, yeah. And speaking of big guys, too, was in that Amarillo territory where you also had a chance to, uh, I guess, uh, work with, or, you know, have hang out with Andre the Giant. Now, they're, speaking of another big man and another guy that a lot of people are still so very, very fascinated with uh, all these years after his passing, the legend just continues to grow in time. But what was your uh, memories of, of encountering Andre the Giant? Well, the one that I can tell... <laughs> <laughs> We were leaving Colorado Springs and driving over to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I don't know, 250, 300 miles. I, I can't remember. But anyway, he said, do you mind if I drive? I said, no, not at all. Well, you know, because he's so big. And I had a 72 Chevy Blazer, great big thing with a big bench seat. And he pulled it all the way back. And I said, you know, Andre, I said, I don't care you drive. You know, I said, I know there's ice. And I said, I know you're from... France and you know how to drive on this stuff. I said, the only thing you need to worry about is the highway patrol when you get to New Mexico. And he said, really? I said, yeah. We bought three and a half cases of beer. I had the two six-packs, which I didn't finish. And he damn near drank all of his beer. But anyway, we're going in New Mexico, and he must have been doing 75, 80, the lights come on in the back, the bubble gum lights. I went, oh, God. And the back seat of the of the blazer is completely covered with beer cans. And I said, oh, we're going to be in trouble now. I said, don't worry about it. You know that deep voice is? Mm-hmm. He, the guy comes up, and he gets out of the car, and the guy goes, my God, you're Andre the Giant. He said, you're Scott Casey. You know, because we were known all over that part of the country, big time. Mm-hmm. And he said, you just can't imagine. He said, I've got four little boys. And this cop was big. He was probably six, seven, six, eight himself. Good-sized fella. And he said, tell you what, he said, you give me some pictures, and I'll let you go, and don't tell anybody that you ever saw me. And I'm scrambling in my wrestling bag, and he did. And I had pictures of him and me and, and me and and. I gave him four of them, signed up, thanked him, thanked him, and I thought to myself later, if that would have been me driving, I'd still be in the jail over there. But not Andre. I mean, he he was such a, I don't know whether you ever actually saw him in person. He wore a, okay, I wore a 12. So mm-hmm. a 12 and a 12, obviously, is a 24. He had a 23 quad triple E foot. Brother, that's beyond big. I, it's just, it's just um, unbelievable. And I could tell you a story, but it would probably get you off the air, so I won't tell it about the ring. And <laughs> I can't tell it. But anyway, <laughs> he, he was just a monster of a man. That's all, and just a sweetheart. If you, if he liked you, he called you boss, and he called me boss all the time. 
Mm-hmm. We'd go to the bars or something, and <laughs> nobody ever bothered us because he was with us. But uh, he, he's just unbelievably big, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You're listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now with our special guest, Scott Casey, author of the book One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey, as we're uh, getting into uh, our, well into our halfway point uh, for our little interview today. I wanted to uh, kind of we'll move along, because I, I, I know there's going to be sometime down the line we're going to have to have you back on the program to, to uh, talk about certain, certain territories. But for, the use of, for this episode, it's kind of a getting to know. And I want to talk now about your connection with Wahoo McDaniel. You, we teased it a little bit at the beginning of the interview for me wahoo is always going to be have a place in my heart it's my one of my all-time favorites because I, my very first pro wrestling show i attended in 1987 it was at a awa spot show at one of the local communities nearby and one of the first wrestlers that i approached for an autograph you know i was uh you know 10 11 years old at the time and i had no fear i went right up to wahoo you know, and I asked him for an autograph. You know, I you know I was didn't know he could have turned me down. I would have been fine either way. You know, would have broke my heart a little. But the thing was, Wahoo, he's like sure. And the thing we sat and we chatted a little bit, and I felt like he was so on his level because he made me feel so just like I was. No, nobody else was around. You know, we were talking about a little bit about his you know, career, and we talked about something that had been filmed uh, that he had filmed for HBO for Inside the NFL, talking about his pro wrestling career and football career. So we were just getting into it, talking about that for a little while and he gave me his autograph and that that moment still I can think about it some now 32 years uh, in the past as clear as day because it's just it's just like we were talking one time you know and I noticed that he was like me he would stop and he would uh, sign autographs and and, you know and I asked him I said why do you do it all the time he said because they're the ones that pay your living think about that I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we, uh, I enjoyed being around him. We, <laughs> we had so many funny things happen. And, uh, so Wahoo, and I'll tell this, and since he's dead, I can tell it now. But I mean, he, his thing in life was if a little bit's good, then a whole bunch is great. It doesn't matter what it was. We finished taping a TV show in San Antonio and went to a place called Diamond Gyms that had an eight-foot bear, polar bear. Uh-huh. And he'd get drunk and say, I'm going to scalp the bear. And I went, oh, God. Anyway, so we're there, and all of a sudden, there's no Wahoo. So we had some wrestling fans there, and they took us back to the, our condo, and I see the front door of uh, his place is open, his car doors are open, the lights are on, and I go, oh, my God, what happened now? So we go in, and I almost step in this pile of foam, and there's three of them. And how do I put this delicately? He had... (laughs) My my girl's going, don't tell this story. But anyway, he had a bowel movement. Oops. And three times, and then I hear the shower going, so I thought maybe he's in the shower. He had an accident or something. Mm-hmm. I get in there, and there's probably three, $400, and his boots are in there, and his pants are in there, but there's no wahoo. So I hear him hollering, oh, in the dressroom, in the bedroom. I walk in there. He's t- curled up tight as a knot. 
He said, call Sandy. And his, Sandy was a gal he was dating, and she was a, a nurse. And she came over, and she brought some, I forget what the heck that stuff is, glucose or something like that, mm-hmm. and filled him full. And he explained to her that he uh, had taken six phenomint and two LASIK shots. And she said, are you nuts? He said, oh, I'm too damn fat. I wanted to lose some weight, you know. <laughs> and he liked to have killed himself. He honestly did. But she pulled him out of it. But, I mean, that was just one of the crazy things that happened to us, you know. It just I guess I could tell you this one, too. I mean, I hope I didn't ruin your audience by talking like that. But no, I, tried I, to be I bet, nice they, I bet you know what the thing is? I bet they're like, wow, that's a, hey, you got another one? <laughs> yeah. We left Corpus Christi, and we're driving back to San Antonio. And in the hill country, there's mile markers just blowing like crazy. So we <laughs> we uh, see these different colored lights, orange, green, yellow, blue, purple, shooting up in the air. And, Glenn, as I'm talking to you, this happened. Mm-hmm. I had Tom Jones, the black wrestler, Bill Mascaris, me and Wahoo, and we're in Wahoo's car. We come around this curve, and we hit mile marker 168, look out in the field. There is this machine hovering in the air, up, and these lights are going off in front of it. And <laughs> Tom Jones, oh, Lord, oh, God, oh. And Mascaris is talking in Spanish, genuflecting, flexing himself. And I'm going, oh, my God, Washington, I think I'll knock on the door and see if we can book them on the next show. I said, are you out of your damn mind? So we left, and uh, I don't know, I, I guess Mascaris is still the only one alive now because Jones died and Wahoo died. But anyway, he would tell you the same story. And uh, went back down there the next week to wrestle again because everything was like weekly down there in San Antonio. And never saw anything. There was no trees messed up, no anything, you know. And it, it was a UFO. That's all I can say. And uh, it was just crazy. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, for another time, we're going to definitely get into uh, a little bit more about the Southwest uh, Championship Wrestling with Joe Blanchard and, of course, uh, your runs in Texas for Fritz Von Erich and World Class. But I want to go fast forward a few years to a time that you had a chance. Uh, you you were one of the acts, I mean, uh, through the course of a three or four years that Vince McMahon signed through uh, that were stars in the territory uh, for Vince's uh, gigantic World Wrestling Federation. Could you talk a little bit? Bit about I mean because I think that uh, when you look back on your your run with the company I think you were just horrible I, I mean they, they really missed out on an opportunity with you because it seemed like they, they you were you were lost in the shuffle as far as card position went because I think they could have done so much more with you especially uh, down towards when they did shows in the south and stuff but I want to talk before we get to that part I want to talk about how you got involved with the World Wrestling Federation uh, first and foremost I knew Pat Patterson. And Pat, unbelievable wrestler. And uh, as a matter of fact, he and his, he was gay and his significant other came to my house. Now, and I, I still, you know, being a kid, I don't grasp the idea of what's going on with these guys. But they were very nice and polite to my mother. 
and she cooked us meals, and uh, he never forgot that. But anyway, I was talking to him one day, and I said, man, I'd sure like to get up to New York. Next thing I know, I get this call. We want you in New York. We're sending you an uh, airplane ticket to Buffalo. So, And I know he had something to do with it. He won't admit it, but that's true. But, and uh, that's how I got to New York. And uh, it was, it, we were in Buffalo, and there must have been at least, I want to say, 50, 75, maybe 100 wrestlers there. Never saw that many guys together like that before. And uh, we're there, and they're talking and saying this and that. And they had a table over in the corner, and uh, Jay Strongbone was ahead of this, and he had a big silver Halliburton full of money, and also he was handing out stacks of tickets for different destinations for the guys that went, you know, you might start in New York, then you go down to Washington or down to Charlotte or, you know, on the East Coast, or you might start in New York, go across, maybe go up into Canada and then come back down and wind up in California. Or you might go into the Midwest, like which I so lovingly call the buttermilk run because you didn't make diddly for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say diddly. I mean, they still were. The minimum was like $200 a night. And uh, so that was just the way it was. And, you know, you, you mentioned you were kind enough to say about my working ability or whatever. But uh, I don't know if someone as we used to say, put the kibosh on me or didn't care for me or what, because they had a committee of guys together, and they were the ones that would help the events decide on who was going to do what and who they were going to feature and things like that. But they never did with me, and and uh, I accepted it. It's like I told uh, George the Animal Steel one time. I said, I'm just one of the girls in the show. <laughs> and uh, he laughed. He thought that was funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was still... Inside, I was still upset about it, but I didn't show it. I just did what I... I was there for almost three years, so, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoyed doing, making a little money, going all over the country and things like that. I mean, we crisscrossed the United States like you wouldn't believe. You might leave New York and you want and you go down to San Diego or up to uh, Vancouver, or over to uh, Miami, Florida. It just went on and on and on. And I, ne- I traveled a lot before, but never like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was an experience, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> now, what were some of the moments that did stand out as far as a, a, a positive stuff that you got to, you know, the time you got to spend there, uh, you know, with whether working with people in the ring or hanging out? Just what are some of the positives uh, before we get to uh, why, why you left the, the company or what happened when you, when you decided to call it a day with uh, Vince? The positive part of it was watching some of these guys and they how they work and it's just like Luthes to the old time world champion said to me one time I'm watching him watch the match the first and the second match I said why are you doing it because you can always learn you can always steal something from somebody else and get out there and, and do your thing and that's that was a positive thing watching some of these guys because some of them were just magnificent and I mean they were like monkeys up on those ropes and things like that and I learned, and I, and I stole a few things, you know. I mean, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. 
I know I was watching one time we were in, in California and all of a sudden I feel these two hands on my shoulders and I and it, I turn around it's Bob Euchre and Mr. Baseball and he, he said where's all the pretty young girls I said they're all over the place take your pick <laughs> but uh, it, I was watching the matches then and I, I, I made a point to watch them all the time because Otherwise, you just get lethargic and repetitive, and, and I didn't want to do that. I enjoyed the business too much to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's about there. Mm-hmm. And you had an opportunity, too. Uh, I guess uh, you kind of filled in last minute. You did get to actually work on a, 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 a pay-per-view, a platform like that. Uh, you, you were uh, in, in a Survivor Series match. Now, that was kind of in its infancy as well. So, I mean, when people go back for history notes, they can say, you know what, Scott Casey was on that team with replacing Brian Blair uh, with, with Jake and Tito. I mean, I thought it'd be interesting to be on a, a pay-per-view because you're a guy that came from the territories. You had your share of big shows, but the pay-per-view world was kind of a different animal and a developing different animal at that time. Absolutely. And all I can think of when Vince looked, walked up to me and said, I'd like for you to work on the show, I'll, the first thing that came to my mind was money. When I wrestled in this, I don't know, four-man tag or six-man tag, whatever it was at the time, I went like five minutes, and somebody beat me. Okay, went back to dress. Oh, no, I went about three minutes. That's right. Went back to the dressing room, and they didn't pay you right away. They had to get all the residuals in, and then they paid you. Usually it was like a three weeks to a month or something like that. Made $5,000. Now, I don't know how many people can make five grand in three minutes, but God bless them if they can. But uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, and uh, I never did figure out why Brian didn't uh, show up for the show or if he was sick or something happened. But anyway... I was there and glad to take his place. Let's talk about what uh, you kind of led you to kind of take a, to leave the World Wrestling Federation and eventually retire. When did you start to kind of see the writing on the, the wall, both with the WWF and uh, with with your career? And what did you do uh, to kind of uh, well, like get over know, that retirement? I, like I said, I was 42 at the time, and uh, I'll never forget, we were in Odessa, Texas, of all places, and Vince had a little room put around it was a desk and everything he sat behind it and he uh i walked in and i because i knew what was happening and i said vince in 1990 do i have a job with you or not and he said no he said once you go to atlanta and come back about a year from now and he said uh maybe we'll, we'll figure something out for you and i thought mm-hmm. and i i looked him straight in the eye and i said vince I can accept failure when given a chance to fail. I said, but you never gave me that chance. And I understand, you know, you had a lot of talent and things like that or whatever. I said, but uh, he said, well, we never really knew that much about you. Well, hell, I was on the USA Network and all this other stuff, you know. So I just don't think that somebody who cared for me and they put the, the don't you Scott thing on him or something but anyway and I'm not making excuses I'm not upset about it I, it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed the travel after that I went home and I lived in uh, Dallas and I'll never forget now prior to this I would work out six days a week hour to two hours I'm being repetitive here but I went home and I sat and I drank cold beer and whatever and 
woe is me to myself, but I didn't say anything to anybody. Not their problem. And uh, that's when I said, this is it. I've had enough, you know. I've, all of the ups and downs and stuff like that were a good learning thing and, and a lot of fun, even if it was good or bad. Just let it go. I, I finally, I said, you know, Scott, you're 42. You're not young anymore. You're not old. But you can't do it like you used to. And that's when I decided to give it up, give up the ghost. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, not completely uh, out of the veins because your legacy kind of lives on as far as your role as a trainer. When you talk about the WWE, it was not too long ago that a certain tag team uh, that was out of Texas, uh, Harlem Heat, uh, were in- inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And uh, your connection, you got uh, your name, you got a shout out for your contribution into developing uh, Booker T and Stevie Ray and helping them on their path to what they ended up becoming in, you know, in, you know, in the Ebony experience going to WCW and then working uh, for WWE as well. So uh, what was that life like as a trainer? And boy, to get uh, your name uh, mentioned uh, so many years after being uh, let go by Vince on WWE television of some kind must have been like, hey, I did something here, Vince. After I left uh, WWF, went back to Dallas, and then I went down to Houston because I talked with Ivan Putsky, and he had a school down there and was teaching. So I went in there one day, and I'm helping him, and and I called him Putter, Putsky. I said, Putter, what's going on? He said, I got a couple of guys you won't believe. I looked in this door, and these, these two big guys walk in, and one's 6'5", one's about 6'4", and it's Stevie Ray and Booker T., and never to mince words, but being straight up with people, because people were straight up with me about the business. And I trained these guys, and they didn't. When, <clears throat> the last time they had a Cauliflower Alley Club thing, I was there to present these two guys. I was so proud of them. I, back in Houston, I would train them and things like that. And I, I, we're in the ring. Stevie and Booker, and they're both looking down on me, and they respected me. And I said, guys, I'm going to tell you something. And I said, you may not like it, but it's the truth. And I said, they're, I said, you know, they're going to call you the N-word behind your back. They're going to be jealous of you because of your size and your muscularity and everything like that. And I said, but just remember this, away from that. It's not what you make. I don't care how many hundreds of thousands or million dollars. It's what you save. And they never forgot that. That's why they had me. They flew me from Florida to Las Vegas to present them as uh, inductees in the Cauliflower Alley Club. And it meant so much to me. I was so proud of these guys. And and they both are gentlemen, and they never have any problems with them at all. And you just, like I said, I'm very proud of them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you mentioned the, the CAC Cauliflower Alley Club, and you've, you've attended, you've been a part of that. Uh, how important is that to have things like the CAC? And I noticed you've done some things down in Florida where they've had luncheons and get-togethers. How important is the CAC not only to still recognize and acknowledge the, the guys that did such great work in the ring and in, in, in wrestling's past, but how great it is as a, a real networking tool because we're, you know, 
to, you know, tomorrow wasn't guaranteed for a, a lot of us. So it is always nice to live in the day and live live for today and to be able to have that networking and to be able to kind of connect with guys that you worked with or guys that uh, were in the locker room or some people that were curious about your career, but you never got to uh, wrestle with. How important is that to have these things like these luncheons down in Florida, these, uh, you know, oh, these, 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 these appearances? I went there one time, and it was called the Legends of Wrestling. And Brian Blair heads us up at a place called O'Brien's. It's a bar where all the guys go eat and drink, and they and they honor some of them with this or that. Now they're supposed to honor me with something down there. Uh, I forget it's either this month or next, but I don't have the money right now to fly down there, so I'm not going. So Rocky Johnson, who's a very dear friend of mine, you know Dwayne Johnson's father said, I'll, I'll accept it for you. And I said, well, I appreciate it. And it means a lot, you know, because for people to acknowledge you, even if you've been out of the business 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, it really does mean a lot, you know. And, and it's very gratifying to know that people care enough to acknowledge you like that. <clears throat> As we wind down here, I'm going to get back to the book. It's called One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. Now, where can the, the listeners, uh, you know, if they want to get a copy, where can they go? Do you have a website? Do you have some hookups with Amazon? Could you give us uh, some details uh, for the listeners well, today? Well, I've got, I'm looking at one right now, and it's it says by Scott Casey and Nicholas Massey, M-A-S-C-I. I do not want know what the email site is. Well, I do believe you can find, you have uh, just recently, uh, there's been a website that Nicholas has set up for you, and we got to give uh, credit where credit is due to Nick for uh, not only uh, helping us uh, set up the interview, the website, and get, you know, and the book itself. I mean, this was a guy that uh, came and, and lended a helping hand, and uh, he's done so much, uh, you know, with booking and, and the like uh, through the years uh, for, for pro wrestling, and he's he's set up that website, cowboyscottcasey.com, and you can find, uh, hopefully you can find it on uh, other places like Amazon and other stuff where people buy books, but uh, we have to, we have to give uh, a little pop uh, to. And of course, on Facebook, you're available. Uh, you can check it out. Like Cowboy Scott Casey, information is available there. But we got to give a little credit uh, and a little plug uh, to, to Nick and some of the work that he's done uh, behind the scenes. Nick has been a godsend to me. I mean, it. Uh, we're partners in on this book, and uh, he is the one that sets up all of these interviews, like with you and uh, somebody else. I did one with a. And I did a show in New York, and I'm going to uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, May the 3rd, which is coming up pretty quick. And uh, he sets all this stuff up, and uh, he's always there, and we just take it from there, you know. And hopefully we can sell a few of these books, and and. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a what a way to go out on. I, I do want to thank you, uh, Cowboy Scott Casey. The book One Last Ride: The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. Go on the Facebook. Look for Cowboy Scott Casey. Go to cowboyscottcasey.com. Scott, I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. It meant a lot to have you on the program. And like I, I we talked about earlier in the uh, hour, we got to have you back on so we can kind of flesh out some of these territories you worked with and and some of the people you worked for, the opponents you had, the I mean the rides you take. The, the road trip stories. I mean, the door is open oh, if you're willing to come on I'd in, my friend. I'd be more than glad to do it. It'd be quite an honor to do it. And, you know, Glenn, it's really been great talking to you. And uh, all you people out there that are listening to this, uh, if you get a chance, check the book out. 
it's like I said to one guy, I said, if, if you're opposed to dirty words or awkward situations, don't look at it. I said, because I'm telling it from the bottom of my heart the way it was. And, uh, you know, there's a few things in there that are kind of risque, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you don't, if you like wrestling and want to hear some stories about some really great people, this is for you. For Cowboy Scott Casey, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now.